I read something this morning uh, about a comet in the 1930s. It was in Finland. Knocked out. I all, actually knocked out all of the uh, the uh, cell tower. Yes, in it did. Actually, actually it was in 1923, and yes, it was in Finland. It was actually crazy because it affected the people. They would. After it passed, they would get lost. They would end up in the wrong home. They would what? forget things. They wouldn't really know where they were. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading about this one woman who called the police and said that the man in my house is not my husband. Oh. And then the, the police came over and they said, this is your husband. She said, no, this is not my husband. I killed my husband yesterday. Awesome. That's how I know it's not him. Awesome. But they couldn't, they couldn't arrest her because he was standing right there in front of them. Do they have any theories of why? Lucky she, she gets to kill I, him again. Hobo Radio, the official podcast of HoboTrashCan.com. You can share your thoughts on the show anytime by emailing Joel at Murphy's Law at HoboTrashCan.com. This is James Ward Burkett, director of Coherence, and you're listening to Hobo Radio with Joel. And now, your host... Miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I'm Joel Murphy. This is Hobo Radio. And today, I am very excited to bring to you an interview with James Ward Burkett. And if that name sounds familiar, and hopefully it does, that is because I. this is the second time that uh, I got a chance to interview him. The first was back in 2014. I interviewed him about the film uh, Coherence, which he co-wrote and he directed, which I am a huge fan of. And he was nice enough. They are actually doing a fifth anniversary screening here in L.A. And so he invited me over to his house and we had another chat about the film and his career. And uh, I think you will really like it. If you remember the previous interview, this is uh, different from that one. If this is your first time hearing me talk to him, you'll you'll enjoy it either way, you know, whether you know coherence or not. But hopefully by the end of this chat, you will go out and watch the film, uh, which is available on Amazon Prime. If you're not in L.A. or if you are here in L.A., hopefully you'll uh, actually consider buying a ticket to the fifth anniversary screening, which just I think is going to be a really cool thing. And which I am excited about because I have never seen this film on a movie screen. I've only seen it in my home and uh, I think it's going to be great. So without further ado, here is my chat with James Ward Burkett. Well, first of all, yeah, thank you for doing this again. Thank but. you, Joel. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my house. Yeah, no, this is this is very exciting. Um, so I, I went back, I was listening to the last interview we did, which was 2013, I believe. Really? Yeah. No. Before that, the movie came out? No, when did the movie, what year was it? Was it 14? Uh, probably 2015 is my 15. guess. Oh, I'm way off then. Uh, yeah, so we, okay. It's a terrible start. That's okay. Uh, yeah, when did it? I was asleep. Okay, anyway. It's matter. possible you snuck into my house before we were finished and <laughs> saw a, a rough cut. It's a parallel, you yeah. You know, in a parallel universe. I would believe you if you told me that. <laughs> uh, but no, so I talked, it was, I know it was October. It was, I was trying to put together a screening and uh, it was when you were doing the gather. Oh, okay. Then 2014. 2014. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so when we talked uh, then, 
It, uh, one of the things that like we just briefly touched on, but you, you mentioned like childhood that you had started out as a direct, like you were always kind of making projects right. and, uh, there was something I would love to explore that more, like to know, uh, you mentioned like star Wars influenced that you were. Yeah. Look, look behind uh, you. Oh, what is it? What is that? Poster? We're looking at a Luke Skywalker poster that Burger King, uh, <laughs> put out when you bought a meal back in 1977, they had this series of four posters that are awesome. That is, yeah, I've never seen that. As many Star Wars things that I've Isn't seen that in the pop best? culture, I've never so seen. So I was looking through some old stuff a couple years ago and I found a couple Burger King Star Wars posters and I looked at this Luke Skywalker one and I was like, that is beautiful. Yeah. And so I framed it because it just took me back to being a kid Walking to Burger King specifically to get the posters. <laughs> the artist, I mean, I can't believe, you know, they probably got like $800 or something to oh, make that poster. I'm and sure. And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend tell me that he tracked down the original paintings that those are based on. And they're gorgeous. Oh, wow. Yeah. I. How did Burger King, I don't even remember Burger King doing posters like i don't know when it, star wars first came out in the 70s you know everybody was jumping on any kind of exploitation of it and any kind of uh, tie-in but so the the stuff that you were making though uh was it just complete derivative like you're you're recreating what you had seen or was there actually yeah kind of but i would definitely take it in my own direction like when uh when Star Wars came out, I instantly had to just write my own yeah. know, version of it as, as a grade school version of it. But I started, you know, drawing it and trying to emulate the Joe Johnston sketches of, of vehicle design and all that because I just thought I need to be part of that world. Yeah, and I feel like that's so many people. I mean, I know that I think Ryan Johnson pretty much explicitly <laughs> said that, like when he was making... Star Wars that like, you know, we, we've all been around long enough that we're now in a world where people who grew up and that was their first influence are now making these films. Yeah. And I, I was influenced by everything that, you know, they would show on Saturday afternoons, the planet of the apes, the original ones. Um, and those just blew my mind, too. So then I'd start writing my own, like, okay, in, in the world stories or, um, you know, I saw 2001. It was re-released in the theaters years and years later. And, and that just took me to a, to a whole new place. So it, it wasn't just one thing, but everything led to another thing. Right. And, but, uh, but all sci-fi or like, was it always? Well, no, not all science fiction, but that was definitely to me the most mind blowing and most mind expand expanding uh, genre. And so that's what I was drawn to. But, um, you know, I loved comedies. I loved musicals. All of it was was great. I was a big uh, uh, Gene Kelly fan. <laughs> I loved West Side Story. I loved anything that was different than normal reality. I was not really into these shows that were just like kitchen sink drama or, or even kitchen sink comedies. Right. Anything that sort of like transported you. Somewhere. Anything that takes you out of the everyday yeah, yeah. was amazing to me. And musicals really, really did that. Yeah. Um, could you like, were you musical or like, did you? Uh, yeah. You know, I was in a band in high school and college, like 8,000 other people <laughs> in the school. So, um, yeah, that was just a natural thing to, to get together with friends and, and make music. Yeah. Uh, so the films that you made though, uh, how, did you ever go back and watch them? Like where, how, how do you think they, <laughs> well, I mean, mostly they it, were only in the planning stages. They were scripts and storyboards and, and sketches and drawings. I didn't have any access to cameras when I was a, a kid. So, oh, okay. So you were just, yeah. yeah. You, um, but I don't know. How do you think you did? <laughs> like, I've got them all. We can look. We can look at all the drawings <laughs> later if you want to. If you want to judge them, I'll give you notes. Yeah, if you exactly. <laughs> no, they're they're great. I, I look at the stuff I did when I was ten, and some of them I'm like, oh, they're finally doing some of this now. <laughs> uh, so when when did it become viable? Like when did it actually seem like a path? 
That is a great question. I grew up in a small town in uh, Arizona, or a small city, Flagstaff, Arizona, and it just, you know, you feel like you're a million miles away from from Hollywood or from any kind of movie making. The closest I got was when I was when I was in school. I heard that Forrest Gump had come through <laughs> town for a day or two to shoot a, a shot of Tom Hanks running. And I didn't even see that, but I heard friends who had known friends who had seen it. And you're just like so full of excitement, just knowing that a film crew has come through and your brain is just wondering, well, what is that like? What, what does it look like? What are they doing? How does it work? And so I had to leave that place uh, and come to Los Angeles. Come, I went to CalArts for my graduate work and and finally there I, I actually got to make little films and test projects and things and it slowly started to become viable just being around other creative people realizing that I was pretty good with actors because I'd spent so many years in the theater and and sort of doing my own little shows with with friends that's when it all the pieces started started coming together the drawing the music the acting, the photography, all of those pieces started coalescing into a, a, an achievable dream. <laughs> it was still in a practical, you know, you're not getting paid for it. It's not practical, but at least creatively, it feels like it's coming together. Did you, at that point, do you feel like you had a, a voice or like, was there, do you think you had developed enough that there, you had a style or that there was like, were you doing like, or was it just all kind of experimenting and sort it's of It's a lot of experimenting, but definitely I'll, I'll bet if we're to look at old stuff, you'd, you'd notice tendencies. There's always a, a kind of an absurdist tendency to the work and, and always something that's kind of weird about it and out of reality. Yeah. Uh, but different genres, like you were kind of playing around with different. Yeah, things. exactly. And we do I, I, every kind of test you can imagine. I had these friends that after CalArts, we banded together and we started a little studio that was just five of us uh, paying every month to have a space to work in up in Valencia, this industrial space. And we would do like a stop motion test and, or we do a, a, a experimental dance on office chairs like this office chair ballet thing that we did for hours and we'd test cameras and we ordered a camera from russia this krasnogorsk uh, 16 millimeter camera from russia they were getting rid of all these military cameras that you know their spy planes had been using for oh, years wow. and so they had thousands and thousands of of 16 millimeter cameras that they didn't need and so we saw this ad for these Russian cameras and, and so we bought one and it showed up and it was so heavy. It's like the whole thing was made of lead because it was military grade camera, <laughs> you know, and it'd probably been spying. It'd probably, you know, the last thing it shot had, had been our missile silos. <laughs> and that was so incredibly exciting to, to get an actual film camera, take it in the desert and to do test shoots with that thing. So it's just an explosion of, uh, of possibility and wonder and experimentation. I would watch a movie about the life of that film camera. Like, oh, <laughs> no kidding. I don't know much about it, but I'd love to, to know the actual history of the Krasnogorsk. Yeah, I just like, as you were describing that, I'm just, yeah, I picture that of like, it's life. Like it, it got this like happy ending. Almost, right. Know? It inspired all these artists uh, yeah. around the world, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, so what, so after college, then, then what? Well, luckily, uh, this job existed called storyboard artist. And since I had been drawing so much since I was two and specifically drawing with an eye for making movies, that was just an incredibly easy, natural fit for me. And I for months and months and months, I just had my sights on somehow getting in with a an agent, you know, who represented storyboard artists and somebody that I knew from CalArts ended up working for an agent and I called her up and luckily she was, uh, she, she was in a position to get me a meeting and 
you know, the last time I'd seen her, we had driven to Las Vegas at three o'clock in the morning, stayed in Vegas for one hour and driven back to CalArts, stayed up all night. And so that meeting went, went great. And and I found myself suddenly sitting next to Michael Bay or Ben Stiller or Gore Verbinski and helping them to storyboard commercials. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what, uh, like, what is that process like? Like, they do they tend to have a pretty clear idea, or is it collaborative? Like, yeah, I, I loved it because I had no, <laughs> I didn't really have respect for commercials. <laughs> and oh, in the '90s, though, you know, there was a certain kind of commercial that was very high end, very big budget, big vision. They would get these kind of auteur filmmakers out of school and give them enormous budgets to make little amazing mini movies sometimes and and they were incredibly creative well that was michael bay like that was his absolutely star, right? like but, yeah, but a lot of those guys kinka yeah. usher and yeah. david fincher spike jones all those uh directors started by doing these incredible commercials yeah so what like so what is it like though when they would bring you in you just meet very quickly and you have to be on your game because they're going to expect you to know all the references. They're going to say, okay, so this shot is kind of like, you know, that one shot in the Godfather where it's like the camera does this and this and this and this. And you're like, yep, I, I do know what you're talking about. And they'll say, okay, so this is more like a, a 10 millimeter lens. And then we're pushing in here and they'll, and they'll just, you know, talk very quickly, but they'll also be waiting for you to have your ideas. They don't want you to just draw right. yeah. what's in their mind. They're, they're like, well, what do you think about this? And, and if you just sit there and go, I don't know, then your yeah. value diminishes <laughs> greatly. But if, right. if you are ready to jump in and say, oh, what if we go wide and do this and you, you know, sketch it instantly in five seconds or 10 seconds, then you start developing a, a really beautiful sort of mind meld between their vision and whatever you are bringing to the table and you can improvise on the spot. And you might meet for an hour or two and come up with, super fast little tiny sketches that tell the story of the commercial. If it's 30 second commercial, it's often, you know, 25 drawings. If it's a minute commercial, it might be 60 drawings. And then you have either a day or two, if you're lucky to then go home and expand those sketches and make them look great and then turn it in. And it's always really fast. Sometimes they need it that day. Oh, and yeah. How much of that, like, yeah, are you trying to get detail? Like, is it just a? Uh, are you? What is the? So you're communicating the scene, but like, yeah, how much of that is like detail or like yeah. you can actually? I can show you. Do you want to pause and I'll bring a couple out? I got a whole uh, a whole box of uh, storyboards. I'll show you. Sure. Yeah, let's pause. It. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what do we got? Okay, so you can see this is. Uh, entitled uh yeah storyboard 1990s so this is just one box of many and Uh, you can get a sense of what we're doing it looks like the first one on top is for the disney channel this is like these uh kids running yeah and it's great like you have great like facial expression kind of yeah and lots of you know, sort of action. Lots of camera movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the arrow, there's little uh, ways of showing, okay, this shot becomes this shot. It's This is a push-in, so we're very wide on the house by a garden gnome. And then the door bursts open and yeah. children are fleeing. Yeah, so that's that's a storyboard. That's a page yeah, of storyboards. That's like, really cool. Looks like the next thing we have is character design. This was for an animated project that someone was developing, and so... I would, I would go home and just draw characters like that. Nice. Looks like this is the rest of that. <laughs> Hi, wife. <laughs> My wife just peeked in. <laughs> Hi. Hi, honey. Oh, you're fine. You oh, I'm not recording? Uh, we're we recording, are. but we're yeah. you're live. Yeah, you're... <laughs> so, yeah, you can see sort of how that... Yeah. That would be like one day of work, these, these 15 or 20 storyboards oh, wow. here. And do you, so the, for the kids, like, do you, are, are the actors cast at that point or are these, nope. are you, you're just, that's imagining. just all out of my head. Yeah. You know, you're just trying to, and that's where the storyboard artist has some influence because 
you're kind of directing your own version in your head and you're no, saying, it, it, I want the lighting to be like this. I want this face to look like this. I think his arm should be like this. So you've got a lot of power. No, you really are direct. Like, that is direct. <laughs> well, this version, yeah. the director then does his own or her own uh, version of it. But sometimes they're influenced by you. They, they love how you've uh, in, envisioned a part of it and they'll say, let's, let's do that. And that happened a lot. Like I worked on a Janet Jackson music video once and I, I had to draw the girls dancing and it got back to me that, that Janet laughed so hard at the way I drew them dancing that she actually incorporated those moves, moves into <laughs> the video. And you can see in the video, there's a couple moments where they're intentionally uh, mimicking the, the the drawings that I did. Do you remember what, what video it was? Uh, I I know exactly what it looks like. I can't remember the name of it. They're they're out in the desert, and there's some like old hotel, and and she's got a little posse of of girls that she's dancing with. It's pretty great. So. Yeah, we won't go through all these, but I just wanted to show you. No, these are yeah, no, they're really cool. What is it? Can I ask what that one is? The that is uh, that is a picture of Robin, as in Batman and Robin, reimagined for a little project I did at CalArts. Oh, okay. And did my own sort of black and white noir version of this girl who was Robin, and uh, walked around the town beating up bad guys and, and kind of having a, a, a mental breakdown. Nice. Yeah, no, my, my brain, I'm a huge Batman fan, so I, it immediately registered. You can you can see her in reality right there. Can, if you stand oh. up and look sort of behind. Oh, wow. Who is, who is the reality? Uh, that is Dory Barton, who is uh, an actor that I went to school with, and she is now a director and a writer. And she... Uh, is one of my closest friends because she, she's also like a script doctor sort of uh, person. So whenever I write something, I have her uh, help me get it to the best possible state it can be. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 She's incredible. That's really and cool. She was Robin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, these are, yeah, they're really beautiful, honestly. Like, I, yeah, it's really cool. Thank you. So I'm going to show you one more thing. So before I had an agent, um, before I, I could get an agent, I had to make it look like I was a professional. Uh -huh. So I would go to Kinko's and this page that you're looking at right now is a sort of collection of, uh, spec art that I had done to send like out and, yeah. and, you know, put my name in the font that this certain agency had done. All of their people <laughs> had that so that I could take it to them and say, look, I'm ready to go. I've, I've, <laughs> I've done your work. Got my portfolio. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's ready. Did that, how did that work? Like, Great. How nice. <laughs> no, the, people respond to a self-starter. Like, yeah, uh, it, I had clearly done so many months of work to um, match the style and, and sort of fit into a professional uh, mode, which was interesting for me because everything in my life up to that point had been just art first, you know, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about create or, or creating a brand of yourself or don't worry about getting hired. And f after school, I was like, Oh my God, I owe so much money for grad <laughs> school. I have no prospects at all. I have to somehow hone this and, and get paid for it. And so for a few months, it was all about just um, making sure that it, I could get hired. Yeah. Yeah. But no, these are, yeah, thank you for sharing these. So, uh, all right. So, yeah, for a while, you, you're a storyboard artist. And yeah. And that was really then to uh, sustain my, my addiction to directing. Because at that point, you know, I'd, I'd made a bunch of shorts at at Cal Arts and I had just fallen in love with uh, filmmaking. And that's still the, so that's the goal. Like you're doing this, you're doing storyboards, but in your head, you're, this is just until. Oh, always. Direct. Yeah. Yeah. Th that, sorry if I didn't make that clear that the whole point was I knew I needed to make money so that I could uh, make little films, you know, I could get 
the Krasnogorsk from Russia <laughs> and I could, I could get my friends together and uh, make films. Otherwise, if I wasn't working, I, it would always just remain a dream. And, and I was very much focused on this has to happen. I actually need to shoot stuff. I need to figure out how to edit it. I need to get a system somehow um, to edit it. I need a computer. Um, that was the goal is I need to be self-sufficient as a filmmaker. And what kind of stuff were you making at that point? Well, like I said, all those all those projects that we would do in our shared studio space, all right. those tests, all those, whether it was stop motion or we we took a set once from a commercial that Gore Verbinski had shot at and they were just going to throw it away. And we said, well, can we take it? Can we have it? And we got it. We rented a truck, went down right before they threw it out, took all the walls, all the all the pieces of the set and uh, drove back to our studio and rebuilt it in our studio space. And we had a set. And what was the set? Like, what did it? Oh, it was some cool apartment building, but like in a very delicatessen way, um, really beautiful textures and, and painted and, and uh, very French. Uh, it was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what, what kind of stuff were you using it for? We did a vampire uh, <laughs> short. They, these vampires were actually addicted to coffee, so they were they were obsessed with coffee, and and they it was just the most surreal movie. It's funny because you were saying that earlier of like you had stuff that like when you were younger that you've now seen like that. I hear that. And then I'm like, you were kind of ahead of the curve on what we do in the shadows. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was very much. It wasn't nearly as good, um, but actually exactly the same sensibility. Yeah. Just a, a sense of absurd uh, uh, dialogue and, and relationship between beings that don't exist in reality. But like, well, what if they did? What would they yeah. talk about? Yeah, no, which is always, yeah, that stuff's really fun of like the, the stuff that often people aren't interested in exploring of, well, if this is true, like. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of that just comes from Monty Python in a way, because Monty Python would have these absurdist sketches about sort of characters like that and take them and say, well, what would they talk about? Yeah. What kind of minutia would they actually argue about? Yeah, I, I don't know. I always find it like I love that when almost like when it feels like the camera just lingers, mm -hmm. you know, like you yeah, just yeah. kind of like where anyone else would cut. And yeah. you're like, no, but what, what does then happen? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do they do now? Yeah. Um, so so then I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too much, but at some point Rango enters your life or you enter. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was way later because yeah. What I was doing, I was storyboarding, I was uh, making my own little films, and then that, I finally got enough film uh, projects, little shorts, little spec commercials to actually get directing work. So then I, I stopped storyboarding and became a director. Now at that point, Gore Verbinski though, who I had done many, many jobs with, he started making movies. And so we did Mouse Hunt together, we did The Ring, uh, and then Pirates of the Caribbean, he would call me up and say, hey, man, I know you're directing now, but I could really use you as, uh, you know, an, an artist and, a, and a, just a co-creative on, on these movies. And so we worked together for years on, on those things, and especially on the Pirates, the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movies, um, you know, generated so many th thousands and thousands of drawings and, and designs for characters and designs for ships and designs for sequences that after the third pirates just, you know, made a billion dollars or whatever, Gore was in a position to say, let's do something else. Let's, let's make an animated movie. And he pitched me the idea for Rango and, and we ended up writing that and working on that for four years. Uh, well, the, the pirates, yeah, let's jump back to that a little bit too, sure. uh, of just, yeah. So what, uh, what was that process? Like, did he have a pretty clear, like, was it collaborative? Like were you, you know, how much were oh, you yeah. coming I, up with? I was the first person he hired really when he got the job and he called me up. I, I remember where I was, I was right in the middle of finishing a commercial and he said, I, you're not going to believe this. I just got this job. Jerry Bruckheimer wants to do a hundred million dollar version of Pirates of the Caribbean the movie. And, and I just thought that's so perfect. <laughs> like, and especially because everybody 
the media was really um, uh, not convinced. They were they were very skeptical that that was a good idea. Well, because it was, I, I think, primarily like it's known as a, a ride at Disneyland, right? It was yeah. only a ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's and, yeah. and Disney had tried to do these other ride movies. They had tried to make Haunted Mansion and Country Bear Jamboree or whatever, and they were, you know, they were terrible. And so now they hear Pirates of the Caribbean, and just like, oh, what a money grab! But I knew that they had hired just the perfect person, Gore Verbinski, doing pirates was going to be a cinematic event, you know, it wasn't going to be just some cheesy money grab. And so, yeah, the, within a few days, I found myself on a location scout with Gore in the Caribbean for several days and figuring out how are we going to make this look like a real movie and how are we going to like bring us back to those, the golden age of Disney live action movies like Treasure Island, Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah, and that, that's got to be a fun sandbox Incredible. to be in. Yeah. Incredible. And, and especially the budget was so big, you could really think of anything. You could say, I want this ship to blow up and, and or have a giant sea monster come up from below and pull it under. And you could actually do that. Anything you could imagine would come true. Was it, was there anything that you, you shot for that didn't, you know, that was no, <laughs> it all made it. everything made it, <laughs> which maybe a little too much because those movies got longer and longer Oh yeah. and maybe we should have uh, calmed it, calmed it down a little bit. What kind of like, what were the discussions about? Like, I don't know the world. Like I, I'm super curious about that of like, just kind of what we were saying with this, like, you know, vampire bistro thing, like what sort of talks were there about what world these characters lived in? Well, we knew it had to feel real. We knew we wanted to shoot in the Caribbean. We knew we wanted the, the real blue skies or the, the big, uh, gorgeous blue waters. So a lot of it was figuring out, all right, how do you make a pirate movie look good? So it's not just every shot is ocean on the bottom <laughs> right. and sky on the top. Because if you're in the water, that's every shot's going to look the same. Yeah. And maybe you'll have some ropes in, in, <laughs> in the middle, in the foreground. So a lot of the talk was, all right, how do we make this a, a livable world that is, um, that's cinematic, that's beautiful? And so we would find ways of, of saying, all right, there's like a, a, a giant water wheel and, and there's a, uh, this beautiful area of jungle that connects to the beach. And so a lot of it was first thinking, what do we want to see in terms of something we've never seen before in a movie? You know, I've never seen somebody have a sword fight on a water wheel while someone's in the middle of the water wheel, someone's on top of the water wheel, <laughs> but they're fighting each other. Um, beyond that, obviously, there's bigger ideas of, of saying, you know, the, that the pirates represent freedom. The pirates uh, are kind of rock and roll. That's like Keith Richards and, and kind of this sense of um, rebellion. And the reality is, I'm sure pirates were pretty awful people. But in the, a Disneyfied version, in a romanticized version, we needed them to have some kind of good qualities. And so we said, OK, what if they're the freedom fighters? They represent independence. And that's what Jack Sparrow and, and his ship are. It just means he wants to be free from rules. So that was the guiding principle. And were there any like... It was did Disney dictate anything specific? Like, was it just make whatever you want, or were there any sort of parameters? Or? No, you can't make whatever you want. I mean, they they want to make money. They want it to be a, a big blockbuster. Um, the first movie had some intention of calling back to the ride, and so right. there was five or six moments where we really tried to um, give the audience a, a, a little. I don't know. It's not really an Easter egg because it's not hidden, but it's. A callback that's so specific to the ride, like the guy's dangling the keys outside the the jail cell to the or yeah. or trying to lure the dog, yeah, with with the key. Um, so that was a little bit of a wish from the studio, I'm sure. But everything else was just make a great movie, just, right? Just make it great. Yeah, which is yeah, that with a a large budget is a <laughs> very exciting prospect. It was a dream, yeah. Uh, so then, yeah, so uh, after that, then Rango. Yeah, and then Rango uh, took several years, and we wrote that together, and I designed a lot of characters. I did the sketch for Rango that, that became the character. And then 
I was the voice of Rango for the first year while we were planning it. You know, Gore and I did all the voices. <laughs> I did like 50 voices and he did like 30 voices. And, and we did a whole animatic, which is a, you just take the storyboards, the black and white storyboards, and you make a, uh, a whole movie just with still images, but with all the sound. You do all the dialogue, all the music and everything, just to see if the, the story's working. And, and that was really fun. That was just working in a house with, five or six of your close friends and having barbecues on Friday and, and, uh, being, being crazy, just, uh, drawing and sometimes writing songs, recording voices. Um, and it, it's temp creativity. Yeah. It's temp. Like, you know that it's temp audio, but is it, are you going all out like on that? Like you're trying to, a lot of times you have to, because otherwise yeah. there's not enough energy to understand the scene. So my Rango was a little bit different than Johnny Depp. Cause my voice is so much lower, <laughs> but I'd be like, all right, you guys I don't, I don't want anybody to look me look at me in the eye, take two steps back. And, and it was this like a little bit of a rougher, uh, crazier version of Rango and luckily Johnny Depp I think his voice is much better for Rango it's a lot higher it's a lot more like John or like uh, Don Knotts yeah and uh, it brought a lot of humor to it <laughs> uh, but yeah that's fun like to yeah I would imagine that's a fun undertaking amazing to, yeah and then working with all those actors when we did record the voices um, was so fun because it wasn't just people coming into a little room and a microphone we acted out the whole movie together as a group. So you actually like had like the, yeah, so the whole cast was there. Everybody's together. there. Which is rare, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And Most animation. people would say it's a waste of time, but, <laughs> but we were like, no, it's so fun. And you kind of get some extra stuff. You get some extra interaction because you're actually talking to the other actors in almost every other animated movie. It's just one actor at a time. They're not actually talking to the other characters. They're just reading their lines. Yeah, I know. To take it back to Batman, I remember Batman the Animated Series. That's how they they would record as a cast. Record. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's actually I know a lot about the making of that. It was a casting director named Andrea Romano who okay. is like responsible for a lot of their animated stuff, and she was very insistent on it. Like, would they walk around doing it, or would they stand in front of a microphone? I think they. I know they acted. Out, I know Mark Hamill acted out a lot of the Joker stuff. Like mm -hmm. he was pretty animated <laughs> with it. So. That's great. Yeah, this was like a play where there's no there's no microphone stands. You know. Oh, oh the, okay. You you have free reign to walk all around the the stage and and. How did you mic that then? Like the whole. They thing. just had mics everywhere. Boom mics. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, because, right. yeah, I think they were, I know they did a cast together, but, yeah, I don't think it was that, you know, free. Yeah, you can big. go online and find uh, the making of Rango to see what I'm talking about. We're on this big gray stage, and sometimes we're on fake horses, and sometimes there's a bar, and there's, uh, you know. And then did they yeah, use that, everything. like, when it came time to animate it, did they actually use that as a reference? Yeah, or? sometimes. Oh, yeah, wow. they would definitely look at it and see yeah. what they could take from it. And, and a lot of times... Um, you know, instead of asking Johnny to come back and, and redo something physically, I would be the, the, the visual reference for it. You know, the way he walked across the street or the way he walked somewhere and rubbed his nose or whatever. I would, I would do that. And then we'd send that visual reference to the animators. Oh, wow. That's gotta be fun. It was so fun. <laughs> you're essentially, you're like Johnny Depp's understudy. Sometimes. In that movie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, all right. Well, so at some point then coherence starts to yeah when we're done with rango um gore started putting together the lone ranger movie and i really loved working with gore but i wasn't i wasn't really inspired by the lone ranger script i don't know what it was but it wasn't really connecting with me and i just felt like i needed a break from the big big budget movies and and when you have you know all that control and i just missed being a director and having a camera in my hand and and having actors in front of me yeah and so was that the first idea that you had was coherence or? um it was one of the first yeah there was another one that we thought about doing which was uh it was basically lord of the rings in a mall that we were going to make for <laughs> you know, $50,000 about these two kids who find a, a, a jump drive that they have to take to the other end of the mall. 
and and along the way, you know, they meet all these characters that are basically uh, stand-ins for all the Lord of the Rings characters, and they're fighting people who are trying to stop them and all that. They're trying to destroy this this hard drive or this jump drive. It's pretty great. Yeah, I like it would have been fun. It was yeah. way too ambitious. That was just <laughs> we, we were talking about doing flash mobs in the mall without getting permission and, and oh shooting everywhere without any kind of permits and. I'm, I'm actually glad we did not attempt that because it, it probably would have crashed after <laughs> a week or two. It would have been fun. Uh, so, yeah, but so then Coherence starts. To, and was it, you know, I mean, obviously it's a it's a great idea, but like was some of it just practical? Like just the idea of... All of it was practical, yeah. yeah. You say when you'd have no money and you have, you know, no support, what, how do you make a movie? You've, I was like, I've got a living room and I've got some friends who can act and I've got a camera and that's it. We can't do anything else. And was it like purely you financed it? Like, well, up front, yes, I paid for the first. We shot it in five days, and that was pretty cheap because it's just uh, you know renting a couple cameras and and uh, paying for the actors' food and stuff like that. So I paid. I don't know, maybe $20,000 to have a, a shoot in my house for five days. But to finish the movie is a very, very different story. Right, yeah. We had to have reshoots. We had to have a real editor come in. We had to have a sound designer. We had to have music created. We had to do some effect shots. We had to do all the legal issues. Uh, and so that is much, much more money. And luckily, my little sister, Alyssa, um, was a fundraiser at one point in her life up in San Jose, and she thought that she could use her connections and find some people that would invest in finishing the movie. Oh wow! Yeah, that's really cool. It was cool. That's a good. It's a good sister move. She came through. She yeah. came through. Uh, and I obviously hope people go back and listen to the last conversation that we had, mm. uh, where we kind of got into detail. But just for someone. Uh, if they haven't heard that one, if they haven't seen the movie, what's like, can you give a like quick log line or like? A, oh, if you haven't it, seen Coherence, it's yeah. a mind bender. It's a low budget indie, but it, it's really fun. And it's it starts out, you think it's just going to be a talky drama. And then about 15 minutes in, it starts to become very strange. Some cosmic things start happening and people get lost in reality <laughs> until it resolves uh and and again i, I don't want to retread too much of what we talked about last time but uh i know just for, as you're talking about putting it together like it was improvised like it was yeah you you had the story like the big overall like sort of that's bigger right. picture that's right and then but the actors didn't know everything the actors had no idea where it was headed they just knew what their own characters were feeling yeah each, each night yeah and then it was a sort of collaborative like yeah then you just let them talk and work it out and and give them little hints or little clues along the way sometimes they would go down a crazy path and let it let them get it out of their system and then you gently sort of steer them back and say oh how about this time we don't go in the kitchen and let's see what happens if you do this and, and uh, because we had spent a year planning it uh it was me and my uh, collaborator Alex Manugian, who plays Amir in the movie, we had worked out all the twists, all the turns, all the puzzles, all the reveals. Uh, we had a pretty good roadmap for ourselves, uh, knowing that it was a, a, a good story and it was going to hold together. And we realized, well, we don't really have to share that with the actors; they'll they'll yeah. figure it out. <laughs> uh, and then, so when it was out into the world like what was that experience of, of finishing it it was amazing we at first we didn't know if we even had a movie because you know you make a movie in your living room for that little money you think well is this a movie or is it a youtube video <laughs> it, it feels really you know like it could go either way but we started testing it on on friends that would come over little screenings of 10 people and we saw that it was really effective and, and that they were totally drawn in. And that gave us confidence. And we got into this wonderful film festival called Fantastic Fest in Austin that Tim League puts on. And it 
that kind of broke us that that we just had a tidal wave of support after fantastic fest and and we knew that okay so somehow we can get it to the world and then what was that so obviously there were the gather screenings which is yep. the last time we talked that was part of it where and the the idea for that was like if you could get enough people to commit to a screening then yep i'm not sure that gather thing is a workable model for a, a lot of movies if you don't have word of mouth and if you don't have already a, a pretty big uh, base of, of knowledge about it you know we didn't have any promotion we didn't have any ads we didn't have any commercials for our movie um, all, but we did have great reviews that was the main thing is that people would read on uh, websites uh, that that the movie was worth seeing and, and, and it just got this tremendous, um, very indie word of mouth going around by just the super nerds. You know, it didn't really get into mainstream nerd land, but, but the super nerds heard about it, and that was wonderful. Yeah. I'm trying to decide if I'm a super nerd. I imagine. I well, how did you know about it? How did you find out about it? Uh, it was a friend of mine, like early on. <laughs> like, are they a super? nerd? I think my friend was probably a super. nerd. There you go. Yeah, if, yeah. if you friends are friends with a super nerd, and yeah. you take their advice, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you might be a super. Yeah, nerd. Yeah, I think I probably. I'm yeah, sure. Like. That's good. That's that's what you aspire to. I mean, that's the audience we were hoping to get. Yeah. We were we were praying that it would get to this generation of of people who were looking for something a little smarter, a little more off kilter, a, a little stranger than typical, uh, that, that involved, um, you know, looking at something without the demand for the big movie star and without explosions and things like that. And we, we knew that that audience existed. Uh, we just weren't sure we could reach them. It's a, it's an interesting challenge too. Cause I remember, uh, my wife, like I, Spent probably a year trying to get her to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where it wasn't that she wasn't into it, but it's like it was a challenging sell in that, like, it's for me at least, and I don't know if you encountered this, it was hard to sell it without giving too much away. Right. Like, you don't want to, like, you, you don't want to sit there and go, like, you need to see it because, and then, like, tell, yeah. <laughs> like, all this. Yeah, but try you're, like, not to give it away. So it was really this, like, just, you know, act of, like, you need to trust me that this is worth yeah. watching. I hear this story all the time, is, yeah. is people trying to convince someone to watch it without giving away why they should watch it. Yeah, without, and of course she eventually watched it and loved it, like, Aww. once, you know. Uh, that was pretty fun, too, is noticing that this is a movie that people really were protective of and saying, don't watch the trailer, don't yeah. read the reviews. It's so fun when you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Which is the same thing we did to the actors, yeah, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. Like, no, that is the the best experience. But what's nice about it, too, is uh, that's obviously a great experience, but then you it still rewards you for watching it more than once. It doesn't just rely on shock. Yeah. You know? And that was very intentional too. Alex and I love movies that you have to watch over and over. And we said, what, what if we structure this in a way so that every time you watch it, you're going to notice something that was buried at the beginning that you didn't think was important or you didn't think related to it. And, and slowly over five or six viewings, it would all sort of reveal itself. Which again, like then with the actors not knowing, it's it's funny to think about. You're getting them to do things that are Easter eggs that they don't know why they're doing. Exactly. Uh, well, I'm curious too because so the last time that we talked, I think you had put it at like somewhere between ten to twenty percent of the like sort of secret Easter eggs that you guys had in there had been had people, been revealed had been revealed. People had come up to you. I remember the one yeah, of, yeah. you said that the big one at that time is someone had just figured out that her parallel parking at the beginning was intentional. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Even from the beginning, she's parallel. She's inserting herself yeah, into yeah. another lane. She's trying to parallel park, uh, which is that's almost like that's, that's a pun. Like, I don't yeah. even know. That's, yeah. Uh, but, but of course, we didn't, t you know, you don't tell the actress, okay, by yeah, the way. This, this is, is super a, important. You're inserting yourself into another lane here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, where, where are we at now with... In terms of people noticing things about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Over 50%. I'd oh, okay. Say, but there's yeah. still a lot undiscovered. There's tiny things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, I don't know. So what is this journey been like you know 
it's still so you you have a screening coming up that's why we're oh yeah we have our fifth anniversary coming up in september and there's an Eventbrite uh, site you can go on if you want to buy a ticket. Tickets are expensive because we bought the whole theater. We just paid to, to own the theater for, for the whole night. And so um, we were hoping that the price would be, would, would be appealing because it's a very special thing. If you missed watching uh, it on the big screen, and most people did, this is your one chance to come watch it with the cast, watch it with me and see coherence on the big screen with a room full of fans. Because again, even when it played in the theater the first time, it was not a room full of fans. It was right. a room full of people who had never seen it before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So no, which, yeah. Have, how much of that have you had? <laughs> like, have you had screenings with room full of fans or? Well, yeah, three or four Definitely. And those are the best because you're in a room that already loves you <laughs> and, <laughs> and they already and they love each other. The fans love each other because they're sharing something that they that they love and they know the references to. So those are wonderful. I, w I got invited to China last year and I had been told that the movie was big in China, but I didn't quite grasp what that meant until I actually got invited to come to China uh, for a few days and I brought Hugo Armstrong with me who plays Hugh in in the movie and we were just greeted you know like uh, like heroes at, at some of these places and, and watching it with with these people in another country who already love your movie who've seen it 10 times 15 times and and you're there in China realizing like I'm sharing this with thousands of people that a few years ago was just an idea in, again, in my living room, right. just a little video shot in my living room has somehow traveled around the world and connected with millions of people. Yeah. And like you said, three days, like it was three days of your life, five, 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 five days of shooting, yeah. five days yeah, of your life. Just like, um, it, it, it's such a rewarding, weird, surreal experience to connect like that. So we're hoping this, this screening in, in uh, September is like that. It's just people who already love it can all get together and for hours, you know, we'll have a question and answer thing after it. We'll have some surprises. We'll have some, some guests, hopefully a, a, a great host and it should be really fun. How did it get to China? Like, how did it start? There's this thing called pirating you might have heard about. <laughs> Was that really? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, so not officially. It didn't officially. Like, we do have one official outlet there, but that's not the way that millions of people have seen it. No. Right. Yeah. Maybe a couple hundred have seen it the actual <laughs> paying way. And I made about $8 for real. But yeah, one guy stood up in China and he, you know, they were so thrilled to see Hugo in real life. Hugo's a giant person, first of all. I think I think Hugo is eight foot seven, <laughs> eight foot eight. And so in China, he's as big as a building. Right. And, you know, they, they would just tremble with excitement and appreciation that we were there. But one guy stood up and said, I think, you know, first of all, we all owe you the price of a ticket. Everybody in this yeah. room, because we all just. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> watched it in a, in a special way. Was well, that a good sales pitch for this upcoming screening, too, of anyone? anyone yeah, there if anyone it? didn't pay to see it, here's your chance to make up for it. That's uh, yeah. that's why we're doing it. Actually. <laughs> uh, and then I, I know, that too, that there, there's a chance of, like, some, some remakes, right? Or some... Yeah, and that was always the hope. Um, uh, we had this crazy idea of having different versions of the film, you know, the the Korean version and the South African version and the um, Scandinavian version. And, and we sold the remake rights just a couple weeks ago to India. Um, and so I'm, I, I hope I get invited to see that version. Right, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited. That was always the, the goal was to take it around the world. No, that's so cool. Yeah, that's got to be... Yeah, just a fascinating thing to see that, yeah, it really has its, like, life of its own. That is. Yeah, my dream is to remake it for China in Chinese, but go back to my house and, Still do and it. shoot it there. <laughs> so it looks exactly the same. It's the exact same kitchen, exact same oh, living man, room. That would be amazing. Ah, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, what happens when your house gets, like, like, if you really get to a point where your your house is famous? Like, yeah. 
You know, I saw the house again in a movie called Gemini that came out last year because now a guy lives there who's a, another director moved into that same house and he used it for a couple scenes in his movie. That's funny. And Gemini is a great movie. You should see that. <laughs> Uh, well, what else uh, is on the horizon? Well, right now I'm just writing and got some really cool uh, television projects that are in development uh, with a couple of my favorite producers. David Goyer is producing for me. And then uh, Nick Antosca, who is a great writer, great producer. He's got a show out on Hulu right now called The Act. Uh, that's getting great reviews and might be up for awards. And so that's really what this year looks like is trying to write these. They're all very strange. They're all, you know, my kind of world where it's kind of mind bending and, and a little bit of science fiction going on. Um, but trying to get those to a point where we can uh, make like a, 10 episodes, 12 episodes of one of those shows. Yeah, which is obviously a good time in general, like with the landscape of, there's a lot of outlets, you know? Yeah. And, and I tried for five years to get another movie off the ground and m movies, I'm not even sure are, are going to exist the way we have gotten used to them in the, in the past. It's so difficult to get a movie off the ground, but television is, is, uh, much richer and the writing is so much better in television right now. So that's, for for now is really the focus yeah it's an interesting like landscape for for movies and i know that that's like kind of a you know there's almost like this cultural discussion of is something that netflix makes that they're calling a movie like should that is be that a, even a movie is yeah. it a movie is it eligible for academy awards right. like these are debates that we're having what a weird debate <laughs> we never thought we'd have that but, right but yeah suddenly they're making movies that are better than movies that you pay $15 to see in the theater. Yeah. And I, I don't know. There's a fascinating thing to me about like, you know, there's this way that the like global box office works and like the, you know, we, we get these big franchise Avengers type movies, which I love. Like I, yeah. you know, I, I, but the, the goal of them is to end up in China and to make a lot of money. And then like, I, I don't know. It's interesting that your bootleg <laughs> version of your film is making it like, I don't know. I, I just, I guess that's a long winded way of saying like, I, it's like the, the business model is kind of forgotten about these smaller films and almost like undervalues the appeal of them. Yeah. But remember the business model does not have consciousness. It's right. just a system. Well, true. So yeah, it's yeah. not, it hasn't forgotten anything. It's just the way it works. And right. it's up to us to navigate it. And it's up to us to uh, find a way to make good quality uh, material. But I, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is like, I don't, I almost feel like maybe we're undervaluing the international market of like, if China will bootleg coherence, then they will also watch it if you put it in a theater, you know? Yeah. China has very strict rules about how many films they can bring in from right. outside. So yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't like, know. I can't just show up with a movie in China and say, Hey, put it in the theater. Right. Yeah. And obviously there's like sort of laws about what can be in very strict laws. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. It's, yeah, I, it's just a, I don't know. It, it, it seems like a very, everything's kind of up for grabs in well, terms yeah. of what the future. It's all changing and it changes every year. You know, suddenly Netflix arrives just a couple of years ago and has dominated the scene. They, they make more material than all of the studios combined. It's overwhelming. Honestly, like, it's hard to keep track of what's on Netflix at this oh, point. Yeah. yeah, it's just overload. How yeah. to even scroll through all the new stuff and, and yeah. where's the old stuff that you liked and why are there so many comics on the <laughs> menu? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I, I'm glad Netflix exists because obviously uh, yeah. they can make great stuff. I want to make a show with them and it can get to the world. So we're all figuring it out and and the consumer is a part of it is part of the the equation of where it's going to go yeah oh, for sure um yeah i don't know do you have bets do you <laughs> of where not it's at all <laughs> no i do know that we're pretty close to losing a good percentage of the population to virtual reality um because every time i i experiment with the oculus rift and and sort of go into one of those worlds I, I have a very strong feeling like 
there's there's no reason to come out of that. <laughs> it's so incredible. There's going to be plenty of people who say, nope, I'm good. I'm staying right here. But isn't it? I mean, I don't know. Like VR is something that has existed for a long time and has never quite. Have you tried it recently? I haven't recently. Well, no, no. you will change your mind. I keep seeing the, uh, what's the thing they have at the Glendale Galleria or whatever. There's uh, some like, there's a Star Wars, you, you might be interested. There's a Star Wars, you like go in a room and it, you like put on a VR thing and you run around like shooting stormtroopers. Oh, nice. Is, yeah, it, yeah. is it great? I haven't done it. I don't know. Well, I'm, you got to try it. Just every time I'm at the, the mall, I see the... I had a dream about that. I didn't even know it existed, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you, you manifested it. I think world. so. You're describing my dream. I just I just had that. Yeah. Yeah, well... Um, it's so in, in, incredibly realistic now and very little lag time between what your body does and, and what you see. And, and that's just going to get more and more and more. Well, as a filmmaker, like what does that... Is that an interesting opportunity to you to try to? Yeah, I would love to be one of the people who figures out how to utilize that for great storytelling and not just game playing because they're right. very different ways of, of interacting. Um, storytelling is a curated experience where where game playing is, you know, you're you're on your own and and you're driving every decision. So is there a way to merge that into something satisfying? Yeah, because I, I, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, because I'm just wondering of like, I know there's theater experiences like where you can go somewhere and it's sort of like you have these actors and you're allowed to like interact with them right. or not. Right. So I guess it would be, I don't know if that would be the, you know, yeah. something just open-ended that you could experience a story. or you But could it still guides around. you to a, a, an ending and a conclusion that has some kind of elevated experience for you. Yeah. Oh, it's got to be a fun thing to at least I love around. thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, is there anything we didn't touch on? There's a few things. Yeah. Anything no. you wanna... <laughs> Now's your chance. In like... the world. Uh, no, thank you so much for coming over. And, you know, I didn't know we'd look at the storyboard. So that was really fun. I haven't looked at those in, in years. No, that's awesome. I, I'm the, again, I, I love that I pretended that I'm not a super nerd. I'm the guy who watches all the behind the scenes. Come on, so, yeah, like, Joel, uh, you know you are, <laughs> which is a great thing to be. And I hope your listeners are too, because yeah, we listen. are striving to make things for you guys. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Appreciate thank it. You. Cool. There you have it. A utterly delightful chat with an utterly delightful man. I, I really could have just talked to him for hours. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please uh, you know check the show notes. I'll go ahead and put a link there to how you can buy tickets if you're here in L.A. Or like I said, if you're not in L.A., go to Amazon Prime. If you've never seen the movie, watch it there. Uh, and if you want more Coherence content, as I mentioned, I, this is the second time that I talked to him. If you go back through the Hobo Trash Can archives, you can find my uh, original 2014 interview with him. Uh, I also talked to Maury Sterling, who uh, is a member of the cast, and I talked to Emily Baldoni, who is the star of the film. So definitely check all those out, along with a ton of other interviews. Uh, so definitely go and check out the archives. And remember, question everything. Show maybe so. Everybody's looking in my window. Should I 
your door And I'm ready to make things right Somebody's knocking at my window Could it be a remedy? Could it be a fantasy haunting me? Everybody's looking in my window Take a look inside There's no such thing as privacy Somebody's knocking at my window Could it be an airplane? Could it be a insane Just before I hit stop, do you mind uh, just doing like a, just for the beginning, uh, this is James Ward Burkett. You're okay. listening to Hobo Radio. Okay. And then you can say anything okay. after that. This is James Ward Burkett, director of Coherence, and you're listening to Hobo Radio with Joel. Oh, that was very, that was like old school DJ. That was like a radio voice. I know, that was good. <laughs> this is James Ward Burkett. You're listening to Hobo Radio with Joel. <laughs> You're gonna speaking of bootlegging, you're gonna be mad when I just start using that. Like for, <laughs> giving that to you. Hobo Radio is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. We have to ask. It's a podcast where we answer the question: Are you gonna eat that? What will you leave behind? Why get out of bed? Will you be our neighbor? I'm Marty. And I'm Jonathan. We're two hosts. Infinite Universes. We We Have have to Ask. ask. New interviews every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes or online at wehavetoask.com or with the other great podcasts on the Peak Sloth Network at peaksloth.com.